Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, February 2nd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Scott Wallace with today's top headlines. The FBI searches Biden's home in Delaware. Russian forces claim operational encirclement in Bakhmut. The UK faces its worst strikes in a decade. Bush is revealed to have attempted to replace Palestine's Yasser Arafat. Myanmar junta extends the country's state of emergency. A report reveals French forces seized Yemen-bound weapons from Iran. Biden moves to slash junk fees. Nikki Haley will reportedly take on Trump in 2024. The EU sets forth a green industry plan. And Tom Brady announces his retirement. Our top story, the FBI searches Biden's Delaware home where no classified documents have been found. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, NBC News, The New York Post, The Hill, and Daily Wire. After a three-and-a-half-hour FBI search of U.S. President Joe Biden's home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, on Wednesday, Biden's lawyer Bob Bauer said the planned search found no classified documents, but agents took for further review some materials and handwritten notes that appear to relate to his time as vice president. This comes as classified documents were discovered at one of Biden's other homes and a private office. According to Bauer, the FBI sought to do this work without advance public notice, and the president will continue to fully support and facilitate the investigation. Biden most recently visited the Beach House on the weekend of January 20th through 23rd to avoid the then ongoing search at his Wilmington, Delaware home. Both residences reportedly lacked Secret Service protection for several months following his vice presidency. Wednesday's search came one day after multiple media outlets reported that the FBI had already searched the president's old Washington, D.C. office after a small number of classified documents were found there last November. The FBI's January 20th search of Biden's Wilmington home confiscated multiple documents dating back to the president's time as vice president and U.S. senator. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed special counsel Robert Hur to probe Biden's potential mishandling of the documents. Former President Donald Trump is also still under investigation for classified documents found at his Florida residence, and former VP Mike Pence recently revealed that he found classified material at his Indiana home. Scott, thank you for laying out the facts of that story. Here on the Improve the News podcast, we like to separate the fact from the narrative spin. Now, we have a few narratives for this story. Our first Republican spin is provided by Town Hall. After already waiting weeks to reveal the original batch of classified documents found in Biden's D.C. office, the FBI again took its sweet time to finally search his Rehoboth Beach house. You would think the FBI would want to quickly sweep the house after discovering that Hunter Biden was using his father's Wilmington mansion as an unofficial office to conduct business with some of the same countries cited in the documents. The hypocrisy after the treatment of Trump is dumbfounding. Contrast that with this Democratic narrative from Newsweek. There's a big difference between the Trump and Biden cases. Trump violated the law by possessing classified papers and attempting to cover up his actions. The former president is facing a serious investigation because he knowingly held sensitive information and actively worked to keep it from the archives. Biden did neither of those things and is being fully cooperative with the investigation, so GOP claims of hypocrisy are unfounded. And we finish up this story with a cynical narrative provided by CNN. Neither Trump nor Biden should have ever mishandled any classified information. 
and both should be investigated per the severity of their violations. However, the overclassification of U.S. government documents has been raised for over a decade, and the bureaucracy of the federal government has produced an administrative nightmare. There must be accountability and reforms to a flawed classification system. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, beavers build dams, dentists drill teeth, and the guys that are in charge of classifying documents classify documents. As it relates to that cynical narrative, I wouldn't expect them to, to, to start doing less yeah, of that. Yeah, well, they have to justify their job or they're not going to get paid anymore. Yeah, well, the justification for my job is classified. So. I can't share that information either in my bunker here where I'm hidden away in the side of a mountain. Shh, you've said too much. I didn't say what mountain. <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. It's day 343 in the situation in Ukraine as Russian forces claim operational encirclement of Bakhmut. And here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, Associated Press, Newsweek, Ukraine Forum, and Bloomberg. Pro-Russia officials from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, claimed on Wednesday that their forces have largely encircled the Donetsk city of Bakhmut, which is referred to as a Troyomovsk in Russian. A Troyomovsk is currently in an operational encirclement, and our forces are closing in on the city. Jan Gagan, an advisor to the head of the DPR, told Russian television on Wednesday, Fighting is underway to control the highway connecting Atroyomovsk with Chazov Yar because it is the only route that Ukraine can use to provide supplies to the troops in Atroyomovsk. The city, with a pre-war population of 80,000, has largely turned into a ghost town, according to accounts. Russia poured scores of fighters to take the city, and Ukraine did the same to defend it. Both are believed to have sustained heavy losses in months of fierce fighting since the summer. Earlier in the week, Denis Yoroslavsky, who commands a Ukrainian unit in Bakhmut, told CNN that leadership may decide to withdraw from the city to save lives if encirclement looks imminent. Ukrainian forces said that four civilians have been killed in the Donetsk region over the past day, including two people in Bakhmut. One civilian was killed and another was injured in Kherson, officials added. One civilian was injured in Kharkiv, while Russian attacks were also recorded in the regions of Sumy and Mykolaiv, with no reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Elsewhere, as Ukrainian President Zelensky said, he is prepping a range of reforms targeting corruption ahead of an EU-Ukraine summit later this week. Ukrainian media reported that authorities raided the home of billionaire Igor Kolomoivsky on Wednesday. All right, thanks for that rundown, Adam. We have a pro-establishment narrative from AP News. In attempting to take Bakhmut, Russian forces have used scorched-earth tactics and turned the once-popular tourist destination into a hell on earth. The Kremlin is so hungry for any success that it's willing to go to any length to take the city, even if it's been turned to rubble. And a pro-Russian narrative provided by TASS. If Russian forces take control of Bakhmut, it would be a devastating loss for Ukraine. Not only has Ukraine lost hundreds of troops in trying to retain the city, but this operation would also enable Russia to continue its advance into key cities of Donetsk, including Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 3% chance that the regions surrounding the Dnipro River, that's Zaporizhia, Dnipropetrovsk, and Kherson, 
will be under Russian control by June of 2023. Uh, Adam, they mentioned that Bakhmut was a major tourist center. I went on to trip.com and I brought up the top things to do in Bakhmut. Yeah. Grab your passport because uh. number one is the salt mines of Solodar City. Wow. And then we have the uh, Cretaceous Rocks of Belo Kuzmin Ovka. The Cretaceous Rocks. And then most importantly, number one on the list of things to do in Bakhmut. Yeah, yeah. The Museum of Miniature Books named after Y.A. Razumov. Wow. Miniature books. So, oh, my gosh. Crustaceous Rocks. What are Crustaceous Rocks? I think rocks? Cretaceous, I think, is what it- Cretaceous. Oh, that's even- That makes it much more clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so- you know, it's practically Vegas East. <laughs> Whatever ha- happens in Bakhmut stays in Bakhmut. <laughs> Take it easy on that salt mine, mister. Maybe that's in quotes. It's a salt mine. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, there's a salt. You got to know the secret password. <laughs> Morton sent me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Turning our attention to the UK, the worst labor strikes in a decade close schools and cripple the rail network. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, Luxembourg Times, BBC News, CNN, and Bloomberg. Some 475,000 union members in the United Kingdom went on strike on Wednesday, demanding pay raises in response to the cost-of-living crisis. Major train stations in London completely closed, and roughly 85% of schools in England and Wales either fully or partially closed. Teachers, university staff, train drivers, and civil servants stopped working as the Trades Union Congress, representing 48 unions, also launched over 75 rallies across the country in response to a government bill it calls an attack on the right to strike. The bill in question, approved by members of parliament by a vote of 315 to 246 on Tuesday, would require basic service levels to be upheld in the rail industry and emergency services in the event of strikes. It now moves to the House of Lords for further review. The strikes, expected to be the largest in over a decade, come as the public sector union members saw pay raises of less than 5% last year, compared to inflation rates above 10%. More than 100,000 teachers from 23,000 schools in England and Wales are expected to strike. Commuters will also face disruptions as 15 train operators are expected to halt operations on Thursday and Friday. Rail union TSSA on Wednesday received two formal offers and is now deciding whether to bring them to its members. Last year's strikes cost the UK an estimated £1.5 billion, or $1.85 billion American dollars, in the final quarter of 2022, and the economy is projected to shrink further in the first quarter of 2023, leaving Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's government searching for answers as it faces approval ratings of under 50%. Thank you for sharing the facts, Scott. We have a left narrative provided by Peebleshire News. Historically low wages call for historically massive strikes. Adjusted for inflation, public sector workers today are making £203, or $250, less per month than 2010. And the government is now trying to strip their only way of bargaining for a living wage. If Sunak's government really wants to help the working class, his ministers should focus on putting more money in their pockets rather than ridiculing the only form of self-empowerment they have. And The Spectator brings us the right narrative. This is being represented as a massive unified national strike when in reality obscure government departments that aren't as crucial as train drivers and teachers are being lumped together with essential workers to bolster its impression. 
Even regarding essential workers, the unions conveniently left out that they continued to get paid during the pandemic, even if they didn't work, while private sector workers were left out to dry. While pay has certainly lagged behind inflation, increases need to be accompanied by productivity, which is yet to return to pre-pandemic levels. Scott, I might have a solution that at least can get, you know, their public services back on track while they figure out their strike situation. I'm listening. Considering that the schools are closed, you put those kids to work, you know, driving the trains, uh, picking up trash and stuff like that. That at least, you know, kind of gets some kind of stuff moving. And at the same time, make people realize how much they need those people working there. Oh, man. Brilliant, That's right? a great. Honestly, it's a kind of bring, bringing back child labor solves the whole thing. Yeah, it'll, it'll remind them what they have, you know, what they, what they got going for them. A United Kingdom archive story says that George W. Bush ordered the CIA to find a replacement for Arafat. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the National Archives, Al Mayadeen English, and Middle East Monitor. Recently released British documents reveal that former U.S. President George W. Bush ordered the CIA to search for a replacement for Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat a few months after he entered the White House. This was concurrent with the Second Intifada ramping up in 2001. This comes as the UK National Archives disclosed last month the PRIM 49-2354 files about the UK-US relations, covering the period from February 24th to April 26, 2001. Bush reportedly confided via telephone to the then Prime Minister Tony Blair on March 31, 2001, that the CIA had unsuccessfully looked to find a replacement for Arafat, who he described as weak as hell while talking about the Middle East peace process. Then-U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell reportedly opposed the search for a replacement for Arafat. Arafat died a few years later, on November 11, 2004, at a Paris hospital after a cerebral hemorrhage allegedly caused by the toxic substance polonium. Palestinians blamed Israel for his death, which it denied. The Bush administration, which took office in January 2001 when the Second Intifada was at its peak, had urged Palestinian leaders to halt the uprising before launching security talks with Israel. The Second Intifada broke out following Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon's entry into the Al-Aqsa compound in September of 2000, amid stalled previous negotiations between Arafat and the then-Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak at the 2000 Camp David Summit. Thanks for those facts, Adam. Narrative A comes from Al Monitor. Arafat was not the leader of the Palestinians, but rather someone with authoritarian tendencies who furthered corruption in the region. The defeat of his Fatah party in the 2006 elections was the people's response to those who could have established a state but preferred to pursue their personal interests. Bush's concerns were well-founded. And a narrative B provided by Arab News. Arafat sacrificed his life for the Palestinian cause, serving as a role model for future generations and achieving undeniable success such as convincing the world about the legitimacy of his people's resistance against Israeli oppression and proving Zionist racism was morally, ethically, and legally wrong. As Palestinians face hardship today, a visionary leader like Arafat is needed once again. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the Atlantic. The U.S. pretends to be a proponent of democracy and popular rule, yet the gap between its rhetoric and actual foreign policy couldn't be bigger. 
For years, the U.S. has unapologetically meddled in foreign countries to suit its own agenda, wanting to overthrow the democratically elected Arafat is but one example. Sadly, it doesn't look like this will change anytime soon. Feels like the public perception in the United States of George W. Bush has really softened over the years. It's like, uh, you know, they say you uh, die a hero or live long enough to become the villain. But if you wait even longer, you could become a hero again, right? And you also need to paint a lot of pictures of cute puppy dogs. That Honestly, that helps. That's good advice to anyone. I think it helps. Yeah, right? Yeah. I would like you more if you painted puppy dog pictures. I'm really into ugly toads. Mm, see, that's your problem. Yeah, I know. Turning our attention to Myanmar, the junta extends its state of emergency. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Independent, BBC News, Radio Free France, and CBS News. Myanmar's military leaders announced on Wednesday, two years after taking over the country, a six-month extension to a state of emergency, a move that would likely delay elections the government vowed to hold by August. The announcement made on state-run media stated that the National Defense and Security Council agreed in a meeting on Tuesday that the country remains in an abnormal situation and time is needed to prepare for a peaceful and stable election. This comes as opposing demonstrators held a silent strike to mark two years since the ousting of Aung San Suu Kyi, urging people to stay indoors and businesses to close, while Australia, Canada, the UK, and the US coordinated a new round of sanctions against the junta. Suu Kyi's government was overthrown on February 1, 2021, as the military declared a two-year-long state of emergency amid allegations of widespread election fraud after her party achieved a landslide victory. After the military junta took over the country, large parts of Myanmar descended into chaos and a civil war erupted. Some 1.5 million people have reportedly been displaced, with the UN believing that around 15 million people are facing food insecurity. More than 2,900 people have been killed and 18,000 have been arrested, according to a local monitoring group, as a direct consequence of the military's crackdown on dissent, including Suu Kyi, who has been sentenced to 33 years in prison following a series of closed court trials. Scott, thank you. We have a couple narrative spins for this story. Narrative A is provided by UN News. The international community must remain firm against Myanmar's illegal and illegitimate military rule, imposing further coordinated sanctions on the junta and supporting the pro-democracy shadow national unity government. Because the nationwide human rights, humanitarian, and economic crisis resulting from the coup remains, a peaceful and democratic transition is impossible. Narrative B comes from the global new light of Myanmar. Due to its commitment to restoring perpetual peace and stability in Myanmar, the State Administration Council had no option other than to extend the state of emergency as insurgents and terrorists are trying to seize power. In addition, this move is needed also to ensure correct voter lists for the upcoming election. I'm not passing judgment on Myanmar or the junta or anybody else, but there were a bunch of kind of red flag kind of terms in those facts, like a closed court, civil war extending a state of emergency, uh, widespread fraud. There was like kind of a lot of like kind of red flags. Yeah, basically everything other than do what we say, we know what's best for you. You know, everything's a closed door, so we can't, we literally can't judge. We don't even know what's happening. Yeah, well, my hope for the best of the population of Myanmar. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to. Stay here. Yeah, I'm going to cancel that summer trip I planned. Well, plus you're going to Bakhmut now anyway. So Yeah, I'm, I'm hitting up them salt mines. Yeah. <laughs> and in a recent report, French forces have seized Yemen-bound weapons. 
And here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Fox News, Al Arabia, and Al Jazeera. A Wall Street Journal report published on Wednesday says that French special forces last month, in coordination with the U.S. military, intercepted a boat allegedly carrying Iranian-supplied weapons and ammunition bound for Yemen. A French warship reportedly stopped a suspected smuggling ship off the Yemen coast on January 15th, and after boarding the ship, discovered more than 3,000 assault rifles, 500,000 rounds of ammunition, and 20 anti-tank guided missiles. The operation came a little over a week after the U.S. Navy seized more than 2,000 assault rifles and 50 tons of ammunition when it intercepted a suspected smuggling vessel operated by Yemeni nationals in the Gulf of Oman. In July, the U.K. Navy, with support from a U.S. Navy destroyer, reported that it seized a shipment of advanced Iranian surface-to-air missiles and engines for land-attack cruise missiles en route to Yemen in the Gulf of Oman. The U.S. and its allies believe Iran has supplied the Houthis with missiles, drones, and other weapons used in attacks against Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and their allied forces in Yemen, breaking the U.N.'s arms embargo on the country. Iran denies arming the Houthis. War broke out in Yemen in 2014, driving the country toward the brink of famine and a humanitarian disaster. Though a U.N.-backed truce took effect in April of last year, it ended on October 2nd after just six months. Despite this, fighting hasn't escalated. The U.N. has since been pressed for an extended and broader deal. All right, thanks for those facts, Adam. The pro-establishment narrative comes from Arab News. This seizure confirms a long-standing suspicion that Iran has been sneaking arms to Yemen's Houthis in breach of the U.N. weapons embargo. By doing so, Tehran continues to undermine peace efforts in the country and is prolonging the conflict. There's also an establishment critical narrative provided by Iran Press. Having sold countless billions of dollars worth of advanced weapons to the self-proclaimed military coalition behind the brutal war, the West lacks any credibility when it accuses Iran of foreign meddling. Though they blame Tehran for the conflict and the subsequent humanitarian crisis, It's ultimately the Western nations that are partnering with a coalition of war criminals. Biden proposes a bill to cut junk fees. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Fox News, Bloomberg and Reuters. During the fourth meeting of the Presidential Competition Council on Wednesday, U.S. President Joe Biden urged Congress to pass a bill known as the Junk Fee Protection Act to curb hidden fees across various industries. The legislation, a joint proposal with the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, or CFPB, takes aim at reducing or eliminating allegedly excessive consumer fees placed on online ticket purchases for concerts, sporting events, and other entertainment events. It also targets airline fees for families traveling together, resort and destination fees, and the costs associated with canceling TV subscriptions, phone, and internet services. The CFPB also proposed cutting late credit card fees to $8, a move estimated to save families billions of dollars and make the credit card market more competitive. Currently, credit card companies charge roughly $30 for late fees. The cumulative total of fees is estimated at $9 billion annually. Following a comment period and the finalization of the new rule, the $8 fee maximum would go into effect in 2024. The meeting also saw the Commerce Department release a report evaluating Apple's and Google's hold in the app world. 
issuing calls for an end to the company's alleged self-preference for their own apps and a ban on requirements that apps use the company's in-app payment network. Thank you, Scott. The Democratic narrative spin on this story is written by Washington Post. Biden and his economic policies, such as this latest effort, have brought the U.S. into the best economic growth since Bill Clinton was in office, even in the face of the current tumultuous environment. While consumer prices have risen faster under the Biden presidency, the economy overall is in much better shape than he's given credit for. Once inflation slows, his leadership through tough economic times will shine. And the Republican narrative comes from the Heritage Foundation. Not only is the economy actually suffering, but Biden doesn't seem to notice, showing how out of touch the White House is with the American people. Under his administration, inflation rates have risen to their highest in 40 years, and 78% of Americans believe the economy is getting worse. As Biden continues to lie to the American people about the state of their pockets, Americans are left wondering where a soft landing spot will be found. And finishing off this story with a cynical narrative by Daily Mail. While Biden may have good intentions, targeting these so-called junk fees may actually end up costing Americans more. These extra fees are what's known as unbundling, which allows consumers to pay more or less depending on the services they need. By getting rid of them, businesses will likely level the playing field by raising and standardizing prices, forcing customers to pay for services they don't want. Nikki Haley is planning to announce a 2024 presidential run. And here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, Post and Courier, Politico, Fox News, Reuters, and BBC News. After teasing the concept for months, former U.N. Ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is expected to announce her candidacy for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Haley's team is reportedly sending invitations to her supporters to attend a, quote, special announcement on February 15th at The Shed at the Charleston Visitor Center in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. Haley is set to become the second major GOP candidate to enter the 2024 race following former President Donald Trump, who announced his White House bid after the November midterm elections. Haley's expected announcement is a reversal from her previous statements, in which she said that she would not run for president if Trump ran. In April 2021, she said, I would not run if President Trump ran, and I would talk to him about it. Trump told reporters on Saturday that Haley called him to say she was considering a run, to which he reportedly told her to go by your heart if you want to run. Haley and fellow South Carolina Republican Tim Scott were absent at Trump's Saturday campaign event in Columbia. Haley is considered a long shot to win the GOP nomination as she was in fourth place in a recent Trafalgar Group poll. Narrative A comes from Town Hall. While Nikki Haley has an uphill battle to secure the GOP nomination in 2024, she is an intriguing candidate with unique qualities compared to the prospective primary field. As a woman of color, she could represent a diverse future for the party, and being the first female of color president would look great for the Republican Party. Her victory might finally end America's divisive culture wars. And a narrative B on this story is provided by Revolver. Nikki Haley represents everything that is wrong with the GOP and is a dangerous neocon relic from the George W. Bush era. She will likely focus on the military-industrial complex instead of taking on big tech or standing up to the leftist ideology, which is concerning. 
America and the GOP can't afford a candidate driven by the elitist political winds. Don't you have to be an elitist political wind to be a politician? Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, I guess Bernie Bernie Sanders not that elitist. Uh, I, mean, the, I mean, he's got like twenty million dollars or something. Yeah, but have you seen his wardrobe? That's true. He yeah. does not dress like an elitist. He does not dress like an elitist, but neither does Zuckerberg. Have you seen that haircut? Yeah, I think that's just because he's an alien. Oh, I see. Well, maybe he's an elite alien. He's yes. an elitist political alien. Yes. The EU sets forth its green industry plan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, the European Commission. U.S. News and World Report, RFI, The Irish Times, and RTE. On Wednesday, the European Commission announced plans to loosen state aid rules and propose a new European sovereignty fund to counter the U.S.'s $369 billion Inflation Reduction Act and China's so-called unfair subsidies to domestic green technologies. According to the proposal, the Green Deal Industrial Plan would preserve a European edge on critical and emerging technologies. In addition, EU President Ursula von der Leyen proposed faster approval of green projects and sealing trade agreements to secure supplies of critical raw materials to reduce EU dependence on China. The EU is reportedly racing to compete with the U.S. to avoid businesses relocating to North America, where energy costs are cheaper, making the United States a leader in green tech at Europe's expense. European Union leaders are due to meet next week in Brussels to discuss the plan, which includes an estimated $50 billion in new spending and tax breaks over a decade to secure the EU's industrial leadership in the fast-growing net-zero technology sector. The International Energy Agency estimates the global market for mass-produced clean energy will triple to around $650 billion a year by 2030. Thank you, Scott. Washington Post has written up a narrative A for this story. U.S. green subsidies, which offer incentives for U.S. buyers of electric vehicles if they buy American, and unfair competition from China, threaten the EU's industries as they tend to leave European firms uncompetitive and lure investments to the U.S. and Asia. As a result, the EU plan offers a global playing field. And Reuters offers Narrative B. The EU plan must be revisited as it only helps wealthy countries such as Germany, which have the fiscal capacity to invest in domestic firms. Not all EU countries can offer subsidies to the same extent as France or Germany. As the plan could entail further joint borrowing, the EU must use funds already approved instead of seeking more money. Yeah, it's too bad the UK is not part of the EU anymore. They could get those kids to work in their plan. Yeah, they could have fixed everything. Maybe they yeah, just start exporting British children. You know, it's a uh, Dickensian love story. <laughs> As if Charles Dickens were into saving the earth. Yes, yes. Our final news today as Tom Brady announces his retirement. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ESPN.com, Fox News, Bleacher Report, New York Post, and NPR Online News. Tom Brady, a record-breaking seven-time Super Bowl champion quarterback, announced his retirement on Wednesday, marking the end of his 23-year career. Brady made his announcement via a video posted to social media, informing the public that he was retiring for good. He previously retired exactly one year ago to the day, before announcing he would return to play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers two months later. 
Despite rumors that teams, including the Miami Dolphins or Las Vegas Raiders, were interested in the soon-to-be 46-year-old, it's been reported that Brady only considered two options, retiring or re-signing with Tampa Bay. During his prior retirement, Brady inked a 10-year, $375 million contract with Fox Sports to be the network's lead game analyst alongside Kevin Burkhart. This means Brady might replace Greg Olson, Fox's current lead analyst and former NFL tight end. Brady spent 20 seasons with the New England Patriots, rising to stardom after being the 199th pick in the 2000 draft. He won six Super Bowl championships and three NFL MVPs with the club before signing with Tampa Bay in 2020, winning the Super Bowl in his first season with the club. All right, Yahoo Sports brings us Narrative A. There's nothing you can say about Brady to overstate his greatness and legacy. The numbers, accolades, and championships speak for themselves. But what truly made him the GOAT was his sheer will to be great and overcome adversity. Despite being doubted his whole career and not possessing the best physical attributes, he accomplished more than anybody has or ever will. And a final narrative spin, Narrative B, provided by Deadspin. There will be an endless stream of Brady echo chambers lauding his achievements while eulogizing his career. But don't forget its darker side. Brady and the Patriots were embroiled in scandals from the start of his career, and he should not be able to escape the cheater label. If sports greats like Barry Bonds and Lance Armstrong are considered cheaters, even while out of the spotlight, so should Brady. I like how he owned that last time didn't stick. Yeah. You know, I appreciate that. You know, he even said for realsies, no take backs. <laughs> he even said like, I don't, I only get one big emotional retirement and I already used that up. So yeah, I'm retiring. There you go. I think he's going to be just fine. Yeah. Uh, something tells me he's going to land on his feet. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org, or you can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Scott Wallace, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.